Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Vitalist Spark podcast. I'm Marcus Johnson, Director of State Health Policy and Advocacy with Vitalist Health Foundation and new host of this podcast. We took a short break over the past few weeks as we said farewell to our friend, colleague, and founding host of the Vitalist Spark podcast, John Ford. Yes, it's bittersweet to see him move on to his next adventure, but I wouldn't be surprised to see his face, or rather his voice, on this podcast in future episodes. John, for your persistent creativity, your boundless curiosity, and your incessant ability to squeeze a dad joke into any conversation, we, I, thank you. Know that through your work, hearts and minds have been open to the great responsibility and yes, the great power that lies within each of us. And now in the spirit of the Olympics, I'm handed the baton, hopefully with a little more success than the US men's relay team. Is that too soon? So what should listeners expect from this podcast? Only the same type of relevant content and insightful guests showcasing the inspiring work that's occurring every day in Arizona to improve the lives and the health of individuals and communities across our state. Today, after more than a two-month hiatus, we're back with our oh-so-talented COVID-19 roundtable and my how things have changed in the past two months. Our first guest, she's our eyes and ears on the medical front lines, emergency medicine physician at ValleyWise Health, Dr. Kara Guerin. Kara, how are you doing today? Doing well. Sad to be back, but happy to talk about it. I hear you. I hear you. Next, he's the reason that many of us were able to spit into a tube instead of having those annoying nasal swabs. He's executive director of ASU's Biodesign Institute, Dr. Joshua LeBaire. Josh, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Glad to be with all my good colleagues again. And finally, the common thread that stretches all the way back to the very first COVID-19 roundtable in March of 2020. He's the executive director of the Arizona Public Health Association, Mr. Will Humble. Will, good afternoon. Thanks, Marcus. And thank you for stepping up as our new MC. My pleasure. Without further ado, let's go ahead and dive in, everyone. We have not had a COVID-19 roundtable in over two months. I think the last one was actually June 8th, which is basically a lifetime ago in COVID time. To our esteemed panelists, what do you remember from two months ago? Where were we in early June compared to where are we right now? Will? Well, we're in substantial spread again now. That wasn't the case in early June. Of course, there were cases in early June. And Josh, you might be able to look at your biodesign website and see where we were in June. My, if I was going to do a back of the envelope guess, I'd guess that we were in like the 800 cases a day range. Even lower than that, we were below 400 cases a day in early June. Yeah. And now we're at 4,000. You see that the hospital utilization is really moving up a lot. Um, The percentage of beds that are used by COVID patients is way up. It was negligible, really, when we did this thing last time in June. Now it's a substantial. I don't know that anybody has delayed elective procedures yet, but I'm pretty sure that those kinds of things are on the way. I know that most hospitals have implemented their incident command systems so they'd be able to quickly make decisions and also So putting together what they'll need to prepare, like, for example, the ethics committees and stuff on delaying what kinds of elective procedures and then going out through their procurement offices, trying to find some traveling nurses and things like that. So things have changed, not just with the numbers and the number of cases, but things have changed within the hospital system. And you've observed that, I'm sure, Kara. June feels like so long ago. June was basically 
almost back to normal in the hospital. COVID was there, but it was a pretty rare occurrence. And we really were not seeing very many sick people. Uh, most of the people we were seeing weren't very ill and for whatever reason decided to come to the emergency department rather just to get a test. Now, basically, it's like it was a year ago, almost like the height, not the worst, but getting in that direction. We don't see as many sick people, but we see more people. So we have more patients with COVID and there's just not as many sick people. And I think that's because a lot of the highest risk patients have been vaccinated. So they're less likely to be as ill. Other change is that among healthcare workers, there's less fear because we are vaccinated. Now that's a whole different story with Delta because we are seeing our healthcare workers and our coworkers get breakthrough infections, which is again, terrifying and disturbing. It's basically like we were back to where we were. It is stressing the system. And I would say that the situation now inside the hospital is almost worse than it was before because of the consequences of COVID. We talked before about how lots of people that work at the hospital have during COVID thought about leaving. And that's basically happened. We had lots of people retire. We've had people quit. There are shortages in every line in the hospital. There's shortages of nurses, x-ray techs, CT techs, housekeeping. At times we can't even find housekeepers to change the garbage can. And the housekeepers that are there are super stressed out just like everybody else because they're overworked. The solution to at least some of this is incentive pay. I know that each hospital system has to evaluate it, but pay has gone up, incentives have gone up. There's incentives for nurses every shift so that they come to work, but that's a temporary solution. You can only do that for so long. You make good money, but at some point it's just not, you just can't do it any longer. And aside from the shortages, everyone is already tired and burnout. We're seeing patients in general are less happy because we have more COVID restrictions. Every other patient I see, I have to remind them to please put your mask on, wear it properly. There are COVID patients here, so it's not just for our safety, it's for your safety too. Patients are getting angry. There's been anecdotal stories that violence in general towards healthcare workers is going up. It's getting to the point where other things are being affected. So not as much in Arizona, but we've heard stories in other places where people that have acute care needs, uh, a heart attack, a stroke, have trouble finding a hospital that can take them. I want to touch on something that you hit on there, mm -hmm. Karen, that, that is kind of the, the emotional psyche of the workforce and the general public. And what I'm hearing from you, or at least what I've even observed, is that there seems to be kind of a juxtaposition where general public, ourselves included, we're done with this thing. Like we feel like a lot of us have gotten vaccinated. We've been battling this thing for over a year. We've done so much great work, but it is still here. And it's frustrating that it's not gone. When you look at the healthcare workforce, when you interact with the healthcare workforce, or when you interact with Josh, your team at ASU, or Will, when you're interacting with public health professionals, what's the general sense that you get from them? How are they doing right now compared to how you see the general public faring at this moment? I think they're tired. I think everybody's tired of this. The difference is that healthcare workers have to go to work and face it again. If I weren't a healthcare worker, I could go, I could choose to do what I do now, which is basically just keep myself and my family doing the basic things. And we're not doing extracurricular activities. We don't go to birthday parties, that type of thing. But I have to go to work every day and face it. And I know what the consequences are. If I didn't know what the consequences are and didn't have to face it every day, I don't know that I would be so alarmed. 
that's the problem is that I think people are fatigued and uh, want to do what they want to do. I just have a question for you, Kara. Do you see healthcare workers getting kind of judgy? This is a pandemic mm-hmm. of the unvaccinated, really. I mean, I know there's breakthrough cases that probably come through the ED door, but it seems like, is there a thing where you're like, here's another unvaccinated person, and it's kind of, it's way different from December. There's a sense that you could say, well, I mean, it's kind of on them. The people that are vaccinated and the healthcare workers that are vaccinated, yes, we do get frustrated. The thing is, as we know, there's a lot of healthcare workers that are not vaccinated, which, to be perfectly honest, I don't understand. So from the things I've read is most physicians are vaccinated and it's a lot of support staff that aren't vaccinated. I don't know that healthcare workers that are unvaccinated necessarily share the feeling of frustration and anger. I'm sure they do because this is continuing and it's painful and unpleasant for everybody. And maybe it's my personality, maybe it's me, but I don't really discuss whether you're vaccinated or not unless I kind of know what response you're going to get because I have enough difficulty dealing with trying to get patients vaccinated. I don't need to deal with other healthcare workers who I educated to try and convince them. If you haven't gotten the vaccine at this point as a healthcare worker, you've chosen not to. I can give you a couple of examples. I know people who had one dose of vaccine, then they had COVID, and then they were told by a vaccinator, don't get another vaccine. You don't need one. You shouldn't have one. I know another colleague who went to get just vaccine and the person who was supposed to give vaccines tried to talk him out of getting vaccine, even though that was the person supposed to deliver vaccine. And then, of course, many of the people who did deliver vaccines in the drive-thrus back in the day were not vaccinated and had no intention of getting vaccinated. It is astonishing the number of healthcare workers who have, for whatever reason, chosen. It's just astonishing to me. Let's keep talking about the vaccine. Over the past handful of months, as more and more people get vaccinated, um, we've seen trends of vaccinations, especially in Arizona, start to dip. It seems like that early group of folks who were really, really eager to get it, they got it. Maybe some of the people who were on the fence are starting to get it, but we've really started to see a dip in the number of folks in Arizona who are getting the vaccine. Um, Will or Josh, have you been paying attention to these numbers? Where do you see that trend right now? And where do you think it might be going in the next two to three weeks or month or so? Arizona's seen some bad stuff, but there are parts of the country, thinking of Southern Missouri, I'm thinking of Alabama, other places, Arkansas, that sort of thing, where they are now being overrun in their hospitals. And they are starting to see an uptick in vaccination. So people are kind of getting the message. Uh, One would hope more would get the message. But yeah, so it'll be interesting to see if the rising number of cases here will turn into people who were on the fence shifting towards getting vaccinated. I don't know if if you've seen that at all, Kara, among the people who've been in the hospital and were unvaccinated, obviously. Are they now changing their minds? Obviously, people that get COVID oftentimes have a change of heart. And then we oftentimes have family members that kind of have a change of heart. Yes, one would Uh, hope, right? Unfortunately, for a lot of the family members, especially household contacts, that ship has kind of already sailed. So we do see some intentions are good, but it only really matters if you get it. I think that that's what's going to happen too. I also would wonder if the FDA is going to get this fully authorized. And I mean, there's talk that there are some people that are just kind of holding out for that. If you think that's going to change anything. What more is there that we can be doing as a state and as a country in order to get more vaccine distributed? 
Well, I'll give you one thing. We could have let ASU and the universities implement their student code of conduct the way they wanted to. That would have provided a terrific incentive for that group of people from 18 to 25 to get vaccinated. But instead, the governor did an executive order at first and then hardwired it into law that took away the options that universities would have had to incentivize it. I mean, if you remember back, I thought it was a really good student code of conduct where vaccinated students could go on their way. And that was before CDC recommended universal masking and that unvaccinated students would need to get tested, I think twice a week, right? But it was the saliva test, which is easy. And But it would have been enough of an inconvenience that they would be like, okay, I'll go to the health center, get the J&J. But why take away the leverage points that you have in the community college and the university system. If you add it up, those are hundreds of thousands of people that you have a direct administrative lever on. And rather than use that lever to incentivize vaccines, the governor takes it away. And then I think approval might make a difference. That's a natural experiment. We don't know what's going to happen with that. If you look at the state health department's website on the number of vaccines given per day, it's gone up a little bit over the last two weeks. You notice the bar chart goes up a little bit. And then I always go to ASU Biodesign to see the more granular detail of it. And interestingly, I expected to see that the uptake of the vaccine would be in certain like younger demographics. But if you look, Josh, on your website on yeah. the vaccines per day, it's equally distributed. Kids, young adults, later adults, and then seniors a lot of seniors, you would think conventional wisdom, the seniors were done, but they're getting vaccinated now. It's evenly yeah. distributed among the age groups. For me, that was surprising anyway. Kaiser in California did surveys of people who initially didn't get vaccinated and then decided to get vaccinated. And they asked them what were the main things that convinced them to get vaccinated. The three top things that they repeatedly heard, first of all, People said that after watching lots of people get vaccinated with no untoward consequences, they decided it was okay to get vaccinated. The second was hearing something from someone that they know personally. So, you know, hearing things on the news was not enough to convince them, but if a doctor they knew personally or a family member they knew personally told them that it was okay and probably a good idea, that convinced them to do it. And the third thing, if there were things that they could do if vaccinated that they couldn't do if not vaccinated, so travel or like not having to use the app at ASU or anything where they were inconvenienced by not being vaccinated, they would get that. Those were the three top things. I suspect what we're going to see is more and more of corporate America is going to insist on vaccination. After approval. After, after license. After oh. approval. Yeah. Right. What's holding up approval is not clinical data. I think the FDA has long been convinced of the clinical benefit of vaccine. But remember, the FDA doesn't approve a concept, they approve a product. And when they approve that product, they are approving everything from the storage of that product, from the labeling on the papers that go with that product, the cold chain of or whatever chain is involved in getting that product out to its distribution points. And so right now, what they're probably mired in is evaluating all of that so that they can say that everything in the plan for either Pfizer or Moderna, whatever they're looking at, is appropriate and safe. And it's annoying because it takes so freaking long. But, you know, we have the benefit in the United States of knowing that when the FDA says something is safe, it's pretty damn safe. They have looked at it from soup to nuts. And they know that everything is safe. And that's what they're probably looking at now. They finally talked to The Washington Post a couple of weeks ago. 
And that's exactly what they said is that that plus one thing you didn't mention, which is that they inspect every factory that every ingredient yes. came from. Yes. So and there's like six countries. So they're traveling to Europe and places to get into those factories. And so they're approving I've been frustrated, just honestly, with the lack of transparency from the FDA and the current administrator, just being this wall of silence. Just tell us where you are. <laughs> like, what's happening? What are you doing this week? What's next week? Put it up right. on the homepage of the FDA, which I've checked, and there's nothing like that up there, so that there's no mystery to it. I've even had friends and family say, you know, oh, well, we're supposed to get a third shot now, but it isn't FDA approved. So I'm waiting for the FDA to approve the third shot. And I'm saying, well, the FDA hasn't fully approved the first two shots necessarily in emergency use. Yes, but it's just interesting. I'm hearing I feel like we're hearing more and more people bring up FDA, FDA approval. Yeah, they um, need a permanent administrator that can communicate. I mean, I'm just going to say it. This yeah. is not working right now. I suspect we are going to hear from them in the next two or three weeks, at least on Pfizer and probably soon thereafter, Moderna. I think Pfizer put their application just a little bit before. And do keep that in mind, too. It wasn't, it, they, neither Pfizer nor Moderna put their application for full approval in until late spring, right? So, I mean, it's not like the FDA yeah. could even look at this. Right. You know, yeah, until, it's up to the manufacturers to ask. That's right. They have to That's apply. Right. And yeah. you're right. Pfizer went first. Moderna turned in their data not very long ago, actually, in June. Exactly. And, you know, I've dealt with the FDA and some of the work that I do. And I can tell you that is exactly the truth. The FDA does not tell you this is what you need to do X. You have to ask the FDA and the FDA will respond to you. That is how they always operate. Thank you for grounding us in real life experience, Josh. I have never worked directly with the FDA, so I think it's easy to. I, I have fingers. visited a number of times. Yeah, on, not on vaccine stuff, but on other things. And that's exactly how they operate. You have to submit your questions long in advance. They will give you written responses with further questions. And then finally, you get your opportunity to go in front of them and discuss it all. So let's let's transition from FDA to CDC. Yeah. In the past month plus, the CDC has come out with a number of different statements, a number of new guidelines to help frame public interest and in what the public should be doing with COVID-19, including but not limited to new statements about vaccine efficacy, about how effective the vaccines are in preventing spread of disease versus preventing severe illness new guidance around masking indoors for vaccinated individuals, yeah. new guidance around masking in schools for students and for staff. How are you all processing all of the new guidance that's coming out from CDC? First of all, I think Rochelle Walensky is fantastic. I mean, she's really smart, very, very thoughtful and a breath of fresh air in that role. But I think nobody saw Delta coming. And I think Delta is really what shook all of them. Delta is an R naught of six or something like that is what I'm hearing now. That means after 10 cycles, millions will have been exposed to it. That's how transmissible this Delta strain is. And it's important to keep in mind, it's not that Delta evades the immune system, as some people sometimes try to say. In fact, Delta is probably no better at getting past the immune system than Alpha was. Beta is much worse at that than, than Delta is. 
but Delta just overwhelms it. It's not that it's got a more clever key to, to pick the lock. It's that it just bangs the door down. Thousands of copies. It gets replicated very early. And when it does replicate, the copy number that in terms of just overall viral number in that body is just so high. And I've seen the data, even people who have breakthrough cases, so who are vaccinated, who get it, they make as many copies initially as those people who are unvaccinated. Now, the difference is if you've been vaccinated pretty quickly, the body recognizes what's going on and it starts to shut it down very quickly in the vaccinated people. Whereas the unvaccinated people, those copy numbers just stay high for a very long time. And so they're, you know, they're constantly infecting other people. It just blows the door down of the immune system. It just gets in there so fast that the immune system doesn't have a chance to respond initially. And hence that, what you just said is why CDC ended up changing the guidance so that they're recommending vaccinated people wear masks in public because of that study. touch further on the CDC recommendations, the CDC has come out with recommendations around schools and various states are taking different approaches, all saying that they're still following the CDC guidance, but to different degrees. Can the three of you help catch us up on where we are right now in Arizona in terms of schools' abilities to either require masks or require vaccines of their staff at the very least, and how some of these legal battles that we hear about are shaking out in Arizona. If you remember back during the budget negotiations, they were trying to get our state legislatures finally divided and they needed every single Republican to sign both the House and Senate to sign off on those budget bills. And there were some members in the legislature that were like, I'm a no on this budget unless I get X, fill in the blank. One of those persons said, I'm not signing off on this budget unless there's a was an amendment to the budget bill at the last minute which uh, added the language that says that school boards and cities, counties, et cetera, cannot require students to wear masks in the classroom. And school wasn't in session yet because that was on June 30th. School districts were still trying to figure out what they were going to do. And Phoenix Union High School District decided they were going to be the first district to test that law. And They said, when the fall semester begins, we're going to ask all of our students and faculty and staff to wear a mask while indoors, not on the playground and stuff. But while they're indoors, we're going to ask everybody to wear a mask and universal masking. And so they came out with that policy. And you would think that they're in violation of the of the law that Governor Ducey signed, which is built into the budget, except for two things. Number one. In our state constitution, it says that all bills, if they're not related to money or the final feed bill on the budget, take effect 90 days after the end of the legislative session. And so this year for us, that's September 29th. This is called a K-12 budget burb. But the budget bill that they threw this mask mandate prohibition into arguably doesn't start till September 20th. And a judge just today, this morning, actually validated that and said unequivocally in a three page ruling that indeed that restriction doesn't take effect until September 29th. And so at this point, we're in mid-August. I think there's nine school districts that are implementing universal masking right now. And I think you can expect that to expand in the next couple of weeks, now that there's an unequivocal statement from the court that the restrictions don't kick in until September 29th. So that's one piece of the equation. The second thing 
is that to get that budget bill through, and remember I described there was all these little special deals that they had to cut to get that final vote to get it through. And so they loaded up these budget bills with all sorts of things that are unrelated to the budget, including the mask mandate prohibition. And there's also a a provision in the state constitution that says that all bills need to be of a single subject and the title of the bill needs to relate to everything in the bill. Now, the state legislature, every single year that I've been in state government violates, in my opinion, (laughs) violates that constitutional provision in the budget through what they call the budget reconciliation bills. But this year they went way too far. And so that's where the next debate will be in the courts. The suit was filed last week where they're challenging that restriction, actually the whole K-12 budget bill, which includes the mask thing, into the court. And there are going to be hearings on that. And we will know the answer before September 29th comes. My sense is there's going to be a preliminary injunctions or a temporary restraining order in place before September 29th. I think the judge is going to rule that the legislature and the governor violated the state's constitution and it's going to undo the mask thing. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. What it means is that they got to go back to the drawing board on the whole budget. Everyone's talking about the mask thing, but this is way bigger than the mask thing. It goes to the entire budget that they passed. That's a long winded way, but it's as concise as I could be. No, that's, that's really helpful. Kara? As a mother, I can tell you, I kept my children home all last year and finally decided that my child needs socialization. So she went back to school and the particular place that we have chosen for other reasons, masks are encouraged, but not required. So there are staff members who don't wear it. And there's under 50% of the children that start the day with it and much less than 50% of the children that end the day with it. These are all children that are unvaccinated. So as a mother, it boggles my mind that legislatures would decide that that's what's good, even though it's against the science. It also boggles my mind that parents don't take this as an individual responsibility to protect their own child. Young people are getting Delta strain. A lot of them are getting sick with COVID. The um, children under 12 cannot get vaccines. And we are seeing kids in the hospitals with this. I mean, it's not at the level of 75-year-olds in the hospital, but kids are going into the hospital and kids are getting post-COVID syndrome. Yes, the amount of children in our emergency department, we had to combine our adult and pediatric emergency departments at Valley Wise because of COVID. But the amount of pediatric patients we're seeing with illness is skyrocketed. The amount of pediatric patients we're seeing with COVID has skyrocketed, as have the number of patients that have been admitted. And just recently, I had a family member say, but COVID doesn't affect your kids. They're going to be totally fine if they get it. And we don't know that. Yeah, um, of course. There not. are children that do have the long COVID or COVID long haul. You have no idea what it's going to do, how it's going to impact the lungs or cognitive ability or what have you of a child. Well, what we do know since we last met is that there's now amassing scientific evidence that the coronavirus does enter the brain. So initially, what we knew about SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes this illness, is that it generally enter cells through what's called the ACE2 receptor, which is it it binds to this one particular protein in cells and uses that to get into cells. What we have now since learned, and there's not a lot of ACE2 receptor in the brain. And so the initial assumption was can't get into the brain. Well, two things have changed. First of all, a group in Brazil 
has found evidence that it goes into the brain through a different receptor through the NRB protein. And it does that in astrocytes. And secondly, people have done pathology stains in autopsies and shown that the virus is in the brain, presumably in astrocytes. So who knows? You always have to remember in biology that there's much more you don't know than what you do know. And that gives a lot of credence to what we've been seeing with patients right, with right. cognitive problems long after they have an infection. Right, 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 right. Yeah. The old, the old joke in medical school was that half of what you learn in medical school was wrong. The trick is knowing which half. Yeah. Always. This is a respiratory virus that can go into your brain. And I think I saw a headline this morning that it's also been connected to impotence. So <laughs> pick your reason for getting a vaccine. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. Let's keep talking about things that we've heard through the grapevine. Kara, whether that's patients or colleagues of yours, Josh, whether that's colleagues or friends or family or Will, whoever you run into, what are the statements you're exposed to where people say, you know, I heard this about COVID. One of the things that we just talked about is, you know, the Delta variant really isn't all that dangerous. It's not as dangerous as people make it out to be. So even if we get it, we're not going to get that sick. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to... Yeah, probably get sick and yeah. your body is not responding to it. But now we are having people have breakthrough infections. I know a number of coworkers who are fully vaccinated and take the standard precautions who have gotten COVID. None of them have been hospitalized, yeah. thankfully, but you still have to be careful. How about this? I already got COVID. Oh, I'm pretty sure that I got it. So I don't think I need a vaccine. I've certainly heard that said. And, and uh, of course, the CDC says exactly the opposite, that they now formally recommend that even if you've had COVID, that you should get the vaccine. And I can tell you that I have seen serology data, which is a measurement of how much antibody is in the blood against COVID-19. And what I've observed is patients who get the disease COVID-19 definitely make antibodies against the virus. And so that will protect them a little bit. If they've had vaccination, the level of antibody goes up dramatically much stronger antibody response to the vaccine than you get naturally to the virus itself. I agree with that. I saw an interesting piece in science that looked at the various combinations of what's most effective in terms of building the antibody response. And prior COVID plus one mRNA vaccine gave a very, very good immune response. Yes. So does this mix and match idea of an adenovirus, like say, well, the study was in AstraZeneca, but it stands to reason it would apply to J2J as well, combined with an mRNA. Uh, that was yeah. in nature, but it was a small sample size. It was like 100 participants, and it showed that that mix and match gave better immune response on the T-cell side of things than the double mRNA. On the antibody side, it was parity. So two shots of mRNA vaccine were equal to the adenovirus plus mRNA combo, but the T-cell response was superior on the mix and match. Which, Which inherently, is... to me, makes sense, right? Because it's like two different methods to get your body to make things. It's obviously a, an area of scientific interest. It might also be the next big public health communications challenge that we're faced with. Think about when all these vaccines started to come out, people started to request certain ones. 
I want Pfizer. That's the good one. I want Moderna. That's the good one. Johnson and Johnson. No, that's not the one that I want. Now layer on that, we're still learning about research on what sort of combinations between multiple types of vaccines, couple that with potential natural exposure, what's actually going to give you the best type of immune response. That's a tough thing to communicate to the public. I think we have to be very, very careful here. You asked us for rumors and that's what we're giving you. But scientifically, let's be very clear in terms of severe illness, any vaccine prevents severe illness. We are not seeing a horrendous number of patients who got, let's just pick, for example, the J&J vaccine showing up in the hospital. People who've had J&J vaccine don't end up in the hospital. People who've had Pfizer don't end up in the hospital. People who've had Moderna don't end up in the hospital. If you've had any full vaccination from any of the American available vaccines, you will almost certainly not end up in the hospital and not end up dead from COVID-19. The vaccines do what they're supposed to do, even as recommended right now. Um, these other things, they're subtleties, and we don't even know if those measurements, serology, all that other stuff, if it really even matters right. uh, in the yeah. big picture. That's right. You see these studies that show the differences in the antibody titer, and it's like there's such a huge margin of safety that if the immune response the antibody response tighter that you get between two different combination of things, it's really insignificant because there's such a margin of safety there that right. it's, you can measure it, but it's not clinically important. Exactly. At this point, these are nice things to talk about, but still <laughs> the most important thing is that people get vaccinated the first time. So Kara touched on it. Boosters. This has been in the news. Certain populations have been recommended to potentially get a booster shot by the CDC. What's the latest on boosters? The CDC is formally recommending, the FDA has even emergency use authorized, boosters for people who have immune deficiencies. Correct. And we should be very clear on that. There has been no statement that says, if you've had one vaccine, but it's been eight months, you should go get a booster. None at all. People who've been even eight months post-vaccine still have very strong immune responses, and none of them are in the hospital right now from COVID-19. So the boosters are really for the immunocompromised, and I have seen those data, and, and there's a reason for that. Because in people with immune deficiencies who got the standard, the standard two-dose vaccine, they do not get the same antibody response that healthy people get. They, many of them, particularly if they've been on chemotherapy recently, or they've been taking an immune suppressant, uh, you know, for a, an organ transplant or something like that, they do not get a strong response or their response takes a lot longer. And that's where the booster helps them. But in healthy people, there's no evidence to suggest that you need one. In medical school, we're always taught that people with diabetes, for instance, are immunocompromised. But what the CDC guidelines seem to say is that people with significant immunosuppression or compromise that are not producing the antibodies, not people who are not as immunocompromised. What does that mean when CDC says immunocompromised? What kind of pathologies, what kind of conditions qualify? Things like they're getting an active treatment for a cancer. So they're on chemotherapy right now. They've had organ transplant. And so they're taking immunosuppressives to, to prevent rejection, but those immunosuppressives also prevent immune responses. Something called CAR T ther therapies, or, or they have a disease, a primary immunodeficiency. 
if they have advanced HIV infection, and we're not talking about people who are on therapy and doing well, but people who have advanced HIV infection, or they're on really high dose steroids. So those are the kinds of things that, that we're talking about. Totally get that. I'm good. Totally with what Josh said. I have heard the CEOs of some of these companies start talking about boosters for Americans. And I think they even have contracts now with HHS. Here's my problem with that is that, look, I don't think it's ethical for us to give Americans routine. I'm not talking about immunosuppressed, but routine booster shots for Americans, even if they were clinically necessary. I think it's wrong to give us a third dose before most of the world has even had a single opportunity. People in Cameroon, all throughout Africa, Indonesia, a lot of South Asia, Oceania. There's so many countries that have almost no vaccine still, and they're dealing with Delta with no vaccine in their high-risk populations at all. And here we are talking about giving ourselves a third dose. I mean, there's only so much global manufacturing capacity out there. That's my problem with the booster discussion, not immunosuppressed. I'm not talking about that. But like this idea that we're going to start routinely recommending universal boosters. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that is so true. And I've thought a lot about that. And I think, of course, I want to do what's best for me and my family. But I think it comes down to money. If you have money, you can get it in, in terms of countries, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, so the CEO... You're right. They need to focus getting the rest of the world vaccinated. As an, as an individual, I'm not going to be able to change that. But man, that just seems so it's unfair for the rest of the that's, world. That's why I try to bring that up as much as I can so it gets into the public discussion. But it doesn't resonate. I'll do tweets that get all kinds of reaction. I'll tweet about COVAX. No one even looks Rounds. at it. This is important. There's two things. It's just the ethics of it that rich countries have access to this where poor countries, and it's not just poor people. It's if you live in a low income country, except very wealthy South Americans were flying up to Houston and living in hotels for the month, but where they get a one vaccine and then they get it another three weeks later for Pfizer and four for Moderna. And then they were flying back to South America. So the very wealthy were traveling to the U S to get vaccinated, but the countrymen, the people in the street, the people that are in the informal economy and even middle class in some of those low income countries, they're still not vaccinated. That's just my soapbox for today that we shouldn't be talking about a third shot for Americans. And I don't think we should be signing contracts with the companies to deliver those shots. We should sign those contracts and have those shots delivered to the developing world. As Josh and uh, Will have pointed out before, the concern isn't just the ethics, but it's also more variants. No, that's right. We yeah. always hear, well, the variants are going to come out of Mississippi. Variants are going to come out of Africa or yeah. Indonesia or Papua New Guinea or somewhere. Yeah. I mean, this is not a virus that mutates easily, but it does mutate. And the more copies of virus out there on the planet, the more variants that are going to emerge. And that, we've seen that over and over again. All the variants that we've identified have appeared, at least in countries that have not had much vaccine. And there have just been probably trillions of copies of the virus because of the overall body burdens. And, and that's where they come out. You know it from your daily experiences, and you've heard it from our guests. The COVID-19 roller coaster continues. We're well into our third wave of COVID-19 infections, this time largely due to the Delta variant. And hospital COVID-19 metrics are following suit. 
the CDC has recommended that all people, both vaccinated and unvaccinated, wear a mask indoors when in public in areas of substantial or high transmission, which is basically the status of every country in the United States right now. Our kids, most of whom are still too young to receive the COVID-19 vaccine, are headed back to in-person learning inside of schools that are battling new laws which remove their ability to require masks and vaccinations. Without question, this pandemic is not over. But there's always hope. The latest research shows that vaccines are safe and effective. They're good at slowing the spread and great at preventing sickness and death. Remember, the choices we make depend on the options we have. We have the tools to beat this thing. The options are on display. Until next time, take care of yourself and each other.